Welcome to this week's Point Community Church Sunday Sermon. If you'd like to learn more about the Point Community Church, please visit our website at tpcc.org.au. Well, um, our house sits at the bottom of Transit Hill. Uh, and uh, the original builder did a really poor job of diverting water around our house. And so my first handyman job when we moved in was to put a surface drain along the back of the house. And I did it, and, and it looked good, but it did not stop water coming in under the house. And so eventually, uh, we got the professional in. We got a plumber, and he did, dug a big trench along the back of the house, and he, he put a waterproof membrane against the back of the house, and then he filled in that big trench with, with a drain that diverted both the surface water and the groundwater. Since the professional came in, we haven't had any water under the house. My surface drain looked really good. I was proud of it, but it didn't fix the real problem. Uh, As we get towards the end of 1 and 2 Kings, we start to see the real problem with God's people. On the surface, they looked like God's people. But under the surface, their hearts were far from God. Now today we're working through five chapters in two kings, so obviously we're not going to be able to look at them in detail. Uh, So here's how we will work through them. Uh, Firstly, um, we're going to see that the northern kingdom had a pattern to their sin. The southern kingdom also had a pattern to their sin. And so first thing we're going to do is look at their pattern. And then we're going to have a think about how that pattern applies to us today by way of warning. And then I'd be remiss, wouldn't I, if we didn't finish with hope. And so that's where we're headed this morning. Their pattern, our warning, our hope. So firstly, their pattern. You got your Bible open? Good on you, Chris, for celebrating Bibles in hands. Uh, So whether it's on your screen or whether it's, uh, as I agree with Chris, the real Bible, on your screen is the real Bible. Open up to 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings chapter 13. And now, in my Bible, at the beginning of 2 Kings 13, there's a heading, Jehoahaz reigns in Israel. And the first thing to note about headings is that they are not part of the inspired word of God. Uh, they're helpful, but they're not actually part of God's Word. So, like in Bible reading, we, we don't need to read them. They're not part of God's Word. Helpful, but not actually God's Word. And so, what I want to do now is just fly through some of the headings in 2 Kings 13. We won't get quite to 17. So, first one I've already read. Jehoahaz reigns in Israel. Which kingdom is Israel at this time? So, yep. Someone said northern. All of you said northern. I know that. Northern kingdom of God's people, Israel. Uh, The next heading in chapter 13, Jehoash reigns in Israel. So again, it's looking at the northern kingdom in that passage. Then we had the passage that Chris read out for us, a little interlude to focus on the prophet Elisha. But then we come in chapter 14 to Amaziah reigns in Judah, the southern kingdom. And so as we're reading through, we're just seeing God go telling us a bit about the northern kingdom and its king and sometimes about the uh, um, 
southern kingdom and its king and little interspersions of something else uh, along the way. Now let's look at the beginning of Jehoaz's reign. So read from 2 Kings 13 with me. Just follow along. I'll read out loud. You follow along. 2 Kings 13 verse 1. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah. So while that king was down in Judah, this king, Jehoash, the son of Jehu, began to reign in Israel in Samaria. And he reigned 17 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. Now go home and read all the beginnings of the kings uh, in the following chapters. Exactly the same words, just different names inserted. There is a very clear pattern. It's very repetitive. Now go to, let's pick on the southern kingdom now. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 14 verse 1. In the second year of Joash, the son of Joahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiadin of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, yet not like David his father. He did in all things as Joash his father had done, but... The high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And then go read the following kings of Judah and you'll find the exact same words just with different names of different kings inserted. A very clear pattern. And there's more. Let's go back to that first king we read about, Jehoaz in chapter 13, and read this time from verse 9 with me. So Jehoaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Joash, his son, reigned in his place. And you guessed it, at the end of all the kings and uh, two kings, that same line's used, just different names inserted for the different kings. Come over to the southern kingdom. Uh, we'll, we'll read from Azariah in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 7. And Azariah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. And you guessed it. At the end of all the southern kingdom kings reigns, we read that same line. They died. They were buried. Uh, just different names for each of the kings. It's a pattern. Have you noticed it as you're reading through? It's like, this is very repetitive. Israel, in the northern kingdom, uh, they were the breakaway kingdom, and we see that they are idolatrous Israel. Uh, their very first king, um, uh, I keep calling him Jehoiabat, which is wrong because I'm mixing up his Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Um, uh, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, the very first king of the north. Uh, he put in a new temple up in the north as they broke away, this breakaway kingdom. He called in priests for this temple that were not Levites. He set up golden calves to be worshipped because he didn't want the northern kingdom to head back down to the southern kingdom and worship at the true temple. And so Israel, right from the very beginning, was idolatrous and continued to be idolatrous. Idolatrous Israel. The southern kingdom, Judah, their sin was slightly more subtle. It was syncretism. Uh, 
They maintained worship in Jerusalem at the true temple, but, but Judah's kings refused to tear down the additional high places of worship and sacrifice. You know, a little bit of God worship, a little bit of pagan worship, a little bit of worshiping at the true temple, a little bit of synchronizing with the nations around us. The, the pattern's very clear. Idolatrous Israel, synchronistic Judah. And then there's the pattern that is exactly the same for both north and south. The kings all died. All of them died and were buried. Didn't matter how powerful they were, how corrupt they were, how evil they were, how long their reign was, how short their reign was, they all died. Brother, sister, through all of those generations, who was the one who did not die? Yell that one out, whoever it was. God did not die. Working through one and two kings is hard work, isn't it? But there is spiritual gold to be found if we're willing to swim in the narrative. Some of these kings were exceptionally evil. All of them were failures. But as we read of king after king after king, none of them could outlast, outwit, outplay Yahweh. Yahweh always was, always is, always will be in control. Our God is in control. Now, we'll come back to Yahweh in a moment. But for now, I want us to look at the final demise of the northern kingdom. So turn over to 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 6. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. So Hoshea, king of Samaria, not God's people. So a foreign king, a foreign nation came in and captured the land, the northern kingdom was in Samaria, captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the city of the Medes. Hoshea was the last king of the northern kingdom. In the year 1722 BC, Assyria defeated Hoshea and the northern kingdom. And all the northern kingdom peoples, all the Israelites that were not killed in that battle were dispersed, just thrown out, never to be Israel again. Does that sound a little too drastic? Wiping out 10 of the 12 tribes. Have you been tempted to wonder if, if God is perhaps a little too harsh? It's particularly tempting to think God is too harsh when we pull out a part of the Bible from the story of the Bible. But don't forget, two kings fits into the whole better story of God. 
It fits into Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Judges. It fits into the whole lot. And so just in case we forget that, God gives us a summary in 2 Kings 17 verse 7. And this occurred, this wiping out of Israel occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against Yahweh their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and, he, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel and, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against Yahweh their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did, whom Yahweh carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking Yahweh to anger. And they served idols to which Yahweh had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet Yahweh warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn. From your evil ways and keep my commandments and statutes in accordance with all that the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants the prophets but they would not listen but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Yahweh their God they despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them they went after false idols and became false and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom Yahweh had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of Yahweh their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger. Therefore, Yahweh was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but for the tribe of Judah only. Wow. Now, I did forget to mention there's a... Um, mobile phone number up there. If you have a question during the sermon, text it in and uh, we'll work with, through it after the sermon. Uh, this is one of the big ones, isn't it? God's divine judgment on our sin. Do you know, in the story of the Bible, though, Yahweh warned and warned and warned and warned God is incredibly patient. But Israel refused to listen. God is not harsh. God is slow to anger. God is patient, full of mercy, love, kindness. That was the pattern. We're now going to head into our warning. What are we to take from idolatrous Israel and synchronistic Judah? Is this just all a history lesson? Yes, 
and I'm going to test you all before you leave. You must remember every single king's name. No. No, no, no. It's far, it's far more than a history lesson. God is wanting us to hear the story of idolatrous Israel and synchronistic Judah and be warned. Uh, so we're going to turn to some uh, passages in Hebrews. So why don't you flip over to Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 2 to start with. We're going to look at uh, Hebrews and a passage from 1 Corinthians. You see, as new covenant Christians, God still warns us, just like he warned idolatrous Israel and synchronistic Judah. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And then chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, He, right now, the Holy Spirit, right now, is saying to us, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Uh, chapter 12, verse 25. See that you... Do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. And then turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters. Some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages is come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. But we are not Old Testament Israel or Judah. We, we are New Testament Christians. Jesus is our King. We're united to Jesus by faith. Jesus has washed away all our sin by grace. But we are new covenant Christians. And at the same time, God warns us New Testament Christians just like he did Old Testament Israel uh, and Judah. Don't chase false gods. Don't harden your heart. Don't synchronize faith. So, are we idolatrous or synchronistic? Now, obviously, we haven't put up an Asherim pole, a pole, have we? 
We, we haven't set up worship little places under every tree around Port Macquarie. But surely we're, we're tempted by the gods of the wealthy West. Materialism. Finding our security in, in what we have and depression in what we don't have. Hedonism. I think hedonism can be redefined in for our generation. It's not just pleasure-seeking, it's comfort-demanding. And then cynicism. When we find what we don't get, what we want, or we're brushed up against someone we don't like, we're very cynical and quick to call them an enemy, complain and grumble. The idol of owning a house has become the excuse for giving less money to church, the the idol of self has become the excuse for half-hearted worship. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get there and be with you when I can. The idol of self-entitlement has become the excuse for cynical whinging and righteousness. Brother, sister, does our heart belong to the Lord? Or are we wooed by fitting in with the world? Do we think like, dream like, act like the world that has not tasted and seen the glory of the Lord? Have we been sucked into worldly worship? You know, as Spurgeon queried almost 200 years ago, is, is the reason we have so little influence on the world because the world has so much influence over us? Does our heart belong to the Lord? Or is our worship half-hearted? Are we just as materialistic as our materialistic world? Are we just as pleasure-sinking as our hedonistic world? Are we just as cynical as our cynical world? We're hyper-vigilant to warn each other about climate change, well-being and healthy eating. But when's the last time you've warned a fellow Christian about the root of bitterness you've seen in them? Or overcapitalizing financially? Or their intermittent attendance at church? Think about it for a moment. God constantly warned his people in the Old Testament. And we've just seen this morning, God constantly warns his people in the New Testament. God warns. Therefore, it is loving to warn. It's loving to warn. I've been a Christian for almost 40 years, and two of the saddest things I feel is that, you know, sharing Jesus with a friend, and you think they're there, and they just never step over the line. That, that's sad, isn't it? And the other one, more relevant to this sermon, though, is that fellowshipping with people over years and watching them walk away. A lesson I've learned, Steve, church, worn with urgency. Worn with urgency. It's life and death. It's heaven and hell. And God is, God is so good. The war. 
our biggest danger is worldliness. It always has been. We will look at all those characters from 1 and 2 Kings and we think, how could they? But if we're honest, we'll admit, um, so could we. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, not, not an Ahab or a Jezebel. I mean, not an Ahaz who sacrificed his own son. Not a Jehu who chopped off all those heads that we looked at last week. But, but what about Elijah? One day, so zealous for the Lord, shouting down all those prophets of Baal and then slaughtering them for the Lord. And the very next day, depressed. And in the dumps, wanting to end his life, forgetting that Yahweh is mighty. Church, let us be warned. And so let's finish with a reminder. Let's finish with a reminder of our hope. I want to show you that even in the midst of all the darkness of two kings, there has been hope. We're going to look at five solid foundations of hope. First foundation of hope is God works through his word. Remember last week when we looked at bloodthirsty Jehu? In chapter 10, verse 30, God told Jehu, you will have a grandson to the fourth generation that will reign on the throne of Israel, the northern kingdom. And in 2 Kings 15, verse 12, we discover that's true. Zechariah, Jehu's fourth generation grandson, was the last grandson of Jehu to rule on Israel's throne. God works through his word. And then in 2 Kings 13, 15, uh, that passage that Chris read out for us this morning, we're we're reintroduced to Elisha the prophet, the prophet, the word speaker, the word of God speaker. In chapter 14, verse 25, we also meet the prophet Jonah. They interrupt this pattern narrative to bring God's word. These prophets appear. God works through his word. God is always working through his word. And here God's universal declaration right over the entire universe. Isaiah 55, verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it out. God is at work through his word. Hope! The second foundation of hope. God is fixated on rescuing his people. Look at 2 Kings 13 verse 5 with me. It's it's just an odd verse. Therefore, Yahweh gave Israel a saviour so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. That is so odd. It's odd because the author of 1 and 2 Kings is meticulous with giving us names. Well, like, come on, stop giving us the names. I can't remember them anymore. But here is this, what did he drop the ball? A saviour. Something as big and wonderful and good as a saviour doesn't even get a name. What's going on? 
You may have noticed that 1 and 2 Kings reads an awful lot like Judges. Judges is the period of Israel's history just before 1 and 2 Kings. And, and Judges has a very cyclical pattern to it. Uh, God's people rebel against God. Uh, God sends an oppressive nation to judge God's people. God's people cry out, God, we're being oppressed, save us. God sends a saviour to rescue his people. They, they come back in, but then they rebel again. That cyclical pattern in Judges. Have you noticed that that sounds an awful lot like one and two kings, except for one devastating bit? God's people do not cry out to God. But, but, this is so important. God still sent saviours. Over and over and over. God is fixated on rescuing his people. In 2 Kings 13.5, we read of an unnamed saviour. Because it's about God who is our rescuer, who is our saviour. And all of these saviours in the Old Testament, even the ones that don't get a name, are all pointing to the one who has the greatest name. Call his name out. God is fixated on rescuing his people. Hope. Third foundation of hope. God is faithful to his covenant. In one of the verses Chris read out for us, 2 Kings 13.23, we read something again is extraordinary. 2 Kings 13.23, But Yahweh was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them out from his presence until now. Why is that extraordinary? <laughs> because generation after generation after generation just couldn't give a flying fig about the covenant. But Yahweh did. Yahweh never took his eyes off his covenant. God is faithful to his covenant. Hope. Fourth foundation of hope. Our God is the God of resurrection. Again, something bizarre. Did you see it? Hear it when Chris read out 2 Kings 13.20? So, Elisha died, and they buried him. Now, bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, so as, as one of the, God's people died in battle, and he's being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen. <laughs> I don't know, have you ever done a funeral like this? You've just got to throw the body into the hole. It's thrown in, and, and, and that body touched, uh, in, it was thrown in the grave of Elijah, and as soon as that soldier, dead soldier, touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Why on earth did God do that? Why did he raise that dead soldier? Because he can. And he wants his people to know it. In Matthew 25... 
In Matthew 27, verse 52, we read that when Jesus died on the cross, the the earth shook and and tombs were opened and bodies of the saints started to walk around. Our God is the God of resurrection. Hope. Fifth and final foundation of hope. Our God is a God of compassion. Uh, Read from 2 Kings 13, verse 3 with me. And the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. And he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. Then Jehoaz sought the favor of Yahweh. And Yahweh listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore Yahweh gave Israel a savior so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. And then just let's read verse 23 again from the same chapter. But Yahweh was gracious to them and had compassion on them and he turned toward them because of his covenant. God's people were idolatrous and synchronistic. But God, but God was patient with mercy and love and compassion. Did I say was? Strike that. Is. This is who he is. Always has been, always will be. Brother, sister, has, has, has your heart wandered? A little bit of syncretism. A little bit of being wooed by the world, more important than being totally wooed by God. Return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. And you will immediately find his smile, his embrace, his love. 1 and 2 Kings was a dark period for God's people. Yet even in that darkest of dark periods, there was just multiple. Go home and read 1 and 2 Kings again. Just see them all, the sprinklings of God's utter control and compassion. We are a people of hope. Close with 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, Father, um, our hope is in you. Forgive us for when we put our hope in 
in this world, in our career, in our bank account, in our friendship circle, in, in just would we put our hope in you? And Father, if you need to test our faith and the genuineness of your faith, oh, it's, would you do that? Because we want to be solidly grounded in your gospel. Again, we pray this for your glory and our joy. Amen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for our latest sermon, or better yet, join us live at 9.30 or 5 p.m. Sunday. You can find all the details on our website at tpcc.org.au.